Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. The title for today's sermon is a bit uh, ominous. It is The Cursing of the Fig Tree. And it is appropriate for it to be ominous because it is the only destructive miracle that Jesus ever performed. So think about that for a minute. Of all the miracles that Jesus performed that are recorded, this is the only destructive miracle. Every other miracle was either constructive or healing, but not this one. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus destroys something. And the question that we need to wrestle with this morning is why? Why did he do that? Well, the answer comes in the form of a sandwich, right? And like this blue heron sandwich pictured right here. And just as Mark did on three previous occasions, as we've been studying Mark's gospel, Mark 11, 12 through 25, this larger passage of scripture is a sandwich. And what do you need to make a sandwich? Well, you need two pieces of bread, one for the top and one for the bottom. You need some meat in the middle. Well, today's passage is the bread. It's the bread for the sandwich. And so what we have is verses 12 through 14, which is the cursing of the fig tree part one. We're going to skip the meat for today. We're going to go to the bottom piece of bread, which is verses 20 through 25, the cursing of the fig tree part two. In the middle, next week, we'll look at the meat of the sandwich, which is verses 15 through 19, the cursing of the temple. Now, why would Mark construct this passage in this particular way? Why does he make these four different sandwiches in his gospel? The answer is that the sandwich, which is more formally known as bracketing, is a literary device where two related stories are used to make a similar point. Two related stories are used to make a similar point. So that the stories are interwoven to make a stronger case than perhaps they would have if they were standing on their own. So think about it this way. Um, You can eat bread separately, right? And that's fine. Uh, But when bread and meat become interwoven to make a sandwich, that's so much better, isn't it, than eating them separately? And so Mark makes a sandwich interweaving the stories of the cursing of the fig tree as the bread and the cursing of the temple as the meat to make a stronger point. And so I think when we see Mark do this, I think we can come to the conclusion there's something important that we're supposed to get out of that. And so with this in mind, would you please stand with me as I read the text? Mark 11, 12 says this, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, so there's the top piece of bread. Let's move down to the bottom. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, 
The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, um, would you open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word today? Would you remind us that this is not just the words of human beings, but these are the words of Almighty God? And God, as we think about how you have constructed this passage through Mark for the purpose of making a stronger point, God, would that point be made in a very strong manner in each one of our hearts today? And may we respond in obedience. So Holy Spirit, please have complete freedom through my mouth and through our ears to take it to heart and to obey, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today's text breaks down into two main parts, the top piece of bread in our sandwich, the cursing of the fig tree, part one, which is the action, what Jesus actually did, and then the bottom piece of bread in our sandwich is the cursing of the fig tree, part two, which is the interpretation or the meaning of what Jesus was doing. So we've got action and interpretation, so let's take a look at that first piece of bread, part one, the action. And verse 12 begins this way. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany. Important for us to ask, the day following what? What happened on that previous day? What was it? We covered the day last week. It was the day in which Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey on what we know as Palm Sunday, ushering in Holy Week, the beginning of the end. For just in in a few short days on Good Friday, Jesus will be nailed to a cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But if you remember last week's passage with all this, all this stuff that was going on as Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, we had the waving of the palm branches, we had the hosannas, it ended rather strangely, didn't it? kind of anticlimactically. It said in verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. That was it. That was it. So what was Jesus doing when he looked around at everything? Well, he was inspecting He was inspecting the temple and its ministry. He was evaluating it, determining whether or not it was fulfilling its intended purpose. And what did Jesus conclude as he looked around at everything in the temple? That the temple, its ministry, and its leadership were characterized by empty religion. While they had the appearance of fruit, lots of religiosity, lots of religious stuff going on, they were actually void of fruit. And it is this evaluation of fruitlessness in the temple in Jerusalem amongst Judaism itself and the religious leaders that will drive the events that we will study today and also next week. And so verse 12 continues, it says, Jesus was hungry. 
Think about that for a minute. We could easily just slide right on by that, couldn't we? Jesus was hungry. By the way, anybody relate to that right now? Especially after I showed you that blue heron picture? Um, The fact that Jesus was hungry is pretty remarkable. It reminds us of his full humanity that accompanies his full divinity. It reminds us of all that Jesus gave up when he left heaven. You know, a lot of times we think about, um, you know, how, how impressive it is that Jesus died for us. And it is. But have you ever stopped to think about how impressive it is that Jesus lived for us? That he came and all that he gave up? You see, although Jesus created all things, he placed himself in a situation here on earth where he needed things. Things like food, water, sleep. You'll remember on the cross, one of the things that he said was, I thirst. I thirst. And and so Jesus made the two-mile trip from Bethany to Jerusalem. He became hungry. And then verse 13 says, And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard of it. Now, these two verses have caused a lot of problems, especially for folks who um, some have even used this as a reason for their rejection of Christianity. Uh, to them, Jesus is acting like a spoiled brat. He's hangry, doesn't get what he wants. And so he curses a poor fig tree and impulsively, compulsively, as an act of emotion, out of control. And how tragic, it's a fig tree that wasn't even supposed to have figs at this time. How childish. Or, or so it seems. But it does raise a very real question for us, a question that demands our attention, which is, why? Why did Jesus curse a fig tree for having no figs when it wasn't even the season for figs? Was Jesus acting irrationally and compulsively? Was he being unreasonable? Uh, Commentator William Barclay, he thinks so. He said, the story does not seem worthy of Jesus. Is he right? Well, to get to the bottom of this, we need to understand a, a bit about the fig tree. The primary harvest of figs is in the fall. Now, the events of our text are taking place in which season? Spring. When the fall harvest of figs is over, the fig tree develops some buds that remain undeveloped until early spring when those little buds grow into little green knops. You might call them figlets. These are edible, but they're not very tasty. These are the the precursor of the actual figs. Now, The knops give indication that future figs will be coming, that there will be a fig harvest in the fall. The knops should have been present when Jesus examined the tree, even though the text says it wasn't the season for figs. It wasn't, because the season for figs would have been in the fall. But there should have been knops. Well, the key to these events and what is going on here with Jesus is that when the leaves are present, and leaves are the key, It is as if the tree is advertising that fruit is present, and that could be either the knops or the figs. But, as we know from our text, there were no knops. There was no fruit, which also meant that there would be no future fig harvest in the fall. And so, 
The tree was guilty of false advertising. Leaves indicate fruit. There was no fruit. It had the appearance of fruitfulness because it had leaves, but there was no fruit. And so here's where the pieces come together. And here's where what Jesus was doing. It was not impulsive, compulsive. It wasn't irrational. It wasn't an act of out-of-control emotion. He's using it as a teachable moment. The fig tree consistently appears in Scripture as a symbol for Israel. Let me say that again. The fig tree consistently appears in Scripture as a symbol for Israel. One example is Jeremiah 8.13, where the prophet speaks of Israel and he says this, When I would gather them, Israel, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. There are other passages that I could cite, but this is an example to say, in the Scriptures, often Israel is portrayed by the symbol of the fig tree. Now, John the Baptist spoke of the consequences of this fruitless condition of Israel. He spoke of it in Matthew 3.8 when he declared, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say for yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Harsh, terrifying words that John the Baptist speaks to fruitless Israel. And so in keeping with John's prophecy in our text today, Jesus curses the fig tree. He devotes it to destruction. Much as we will see him do next week when Jesus visits the temple in the meat of our sandwich, which is verses 15 through 19. All right? You with me? Okay. Now let's move to the bottom piece of bread in our sandwich, the cursing of the fig tree part two, which is the interpretation or the meaning of what Jesus is doing. In the progression of our text, a day passes since Jesus cursed the fig tree. And then we read in verse 20, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So, not surprisingly, what Jesus proclaimed over the fig tree actually came to pass. The fig tree's dead, reminding us for good and for also those things that are consequences, everything that Jesus says he will do. Notice that the fig tree withered away to its roots. This means it was complete destruction, complete death. The entire Jewish religious system and the temple itself would be completely torn down. And we'll talk more about specifically, even historically, how that actually took place. Jesus continues the lesson in verse 22. This lesson, this teachable moment that he is giving to his disciples about this fig tree. Jesus says in verse 22, he answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, 
believe. This is somewhat of a head-scratcher. It seems to be a strange teaching on the heels of the cursing of the fig tree. What was an object lesson dealing with the fruitlessness of Judaism has now become a lesson on prayer. And you might wonder, well, what do these have to do with each other? Well, spoiler alert, we're going to delve a little bit into what we're going to see next week when Jesus curses the temple. In the midst of that, he makes this statement very familiar to you. Verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. Prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so you see, as far as Jesus was concerned, prayer is the key to spiritual fruitfulness. Prayer is the key to spiritual fruitfulness. It is that which connects us relationally to God. True prayer was lacking in the temple, and therefore, spiritual fruit was also lacking. No prayer, no fruit. And that is why Jesus transitioned into teaching his disciples about prayer beginning here in verse 22. If they're going to be spiritually fruitful in contrast to Judaism, in contrast to Israel and the temple and the religious authorities, they're going to have to be people of prayer. And so he teaches them two essential elements of prayer. These are not the only two, but these are the two that Jesus felt were most important in this teachable moment to teach his disciples, and now he is teaching them to us today. Two essential elements of prayer, and the first of these is faith. Faith, verses 22 through 24. Uh, So let's look again at verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, don't you wish you were me right now trying to try to explain this? Um, We have to be very careful with these verses, don't we? Because out of context... And without the full counsel of God, we could arrive at a faulty kind of theology known as that name it, claim it kind of a thing where God is a a genie in a bottle and it becomes very magical, abracadabra. God gives us whatever we ask because we just have enough faith. The kind of theology that says, hey, if you just have enough faith, God will give you whatever you ask. That theology is real. It's out there. But it's so very wrong. So very misguided. Scripture teaches us that there are multiple variables which impact how God responds to our prayers. Um, Faith is one variable. It's very real. Jesus says so. It's one of the essentials that Jesus is here teaching to his disciples. His will is another variable. If you have tons of faith, but you're praying against God's will, that doesn't work. The condition of our hearts is yet another variable. The scriptures tell us if I had um, harbored sin in my heart, the Lord would not listen. And so there are multiple variables when it comes to how, how God responds to our prayers. And so then bringing it back, what is 
Jesus teaching us here about faith in prayer, if it's one of two essentials that he's pointing out here, what is he saying? Well, Jesus is first and foremost emphasizing the object of our faith. Jesus is first and foremost emphasizing the object of our faith. Let's go back to verse 22. may have, again, glossed over a very important phrase. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. You see, in, in some of these traditions where it becomes name it, claim it, their faith is really in faith. Or their faith is in prayer rather than their faith being in the proper object, which is God. Um, this might be a little controversial, but I think you'll know what I mean by the time I explain it. You've heard that it says that prayer changes things, right? It's kind of a popular saying. Prayer changes things. No, it doesn't. God changes things. The object of our faith, the object of our prayer. God changes things. Prayer is the means by which we cultivate intimate relationship with God, the means by which we abide in Him, Him who changes things. God changes things. Now, that's not to denigrate the importance of prayer. Hopefully, it's the very opposite. Prayer is essential for us abiding in the God who changes things. Does that make sense? As it says in John 15, verse 7, if, it's conditional, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So here's some more of the, some more of the puzzles, some more of how these variables fit together. When we abide in God through prayer and the word, then our wills become in sync with his will, and then we are truly able to ask whatever we wish, and it will be done. Why? Because then God's agenda is our agenda, and his will becomes our will. It has been revealed to us, and so we can pray with confidence and with absolute faith in God who is capable of all things, even moving mountains. The whole idea of um, this mountain before you, it's a symbol of whatever obstacle, whatever comes against us. It's also hyperbole to a certain degree. Is there any record of Jesus literally moving a mountain? Or his disciples literally moving a mountain? No. But there were lots of figurative mountains that came against them. And through the power of prayer, as those disciples abided in Christ and his word abided in them, they moved mountains. Just read the book of Acts. And you'll see many, many mountains that moved in response to their prayers. But the key, Jesus says, is to have faith, not in faith, not even in prayer but to have faith in God because it's all about Him. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He says, faith does not look at the difficulties. That's where, I, that's where I have a problem. I tend to look at the mountain, at the difficulties, at the giant before me. I tend to focus on that. Faith does not look at the difficulties. Faith does not look at itself or at the person who is exercising it. Faith looks at God. Faith is interested in God only. 
And it talks about God, and it praises God, and it extols the virtues of God. The measure of the strength of a man's faith always is ultimately the measure of his knowledge of God. Now let me just pause there for a moment. This is not talking about information. This is not talking about head knowledge and knowing lots of trivia about the Bible and Scripture. This is an experiential kind of knowledge, a personal knowledge, a relational knowledge of who God is. It's that abiding that we were talking about. He knows God so well that he can rest on the knowledge. And it is the prayers of such a man that are answered. And when you truly have that kind of knowledge of God, that kind of relationship, you know that you know that you know that He is able to move whatever mountain stands in front of you. And so, this is why the first essential of prayer that Jesus teaches His disciples is faith. It is faith. The second essential element of prayer is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Verse 25. Jesus says to his disciples, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What does it mean, truly, to forgive. That could be a sermon series all on its own, and maybe someday it will be. Uh, Many facets, many different dimensions to what forgiveness is all about. But I would define forgiveness like this, very simply. To forgive means to release others from their debt against us. To forgive means to release others from their debt against us. To no longer hold against them an offense They have committed against us. So very simply, that's what forgiveness is, to release them. To release them. We don't ruminate about that offense. We don't ruminate about that person. We don't have all these imaginary conversations. Well, if I had the opportunity, I would say this, and I would do this, and we release it. We release them. But, listen carefully, it's very important that we also identify what forgiveness is not. What forgiveness is not. It does not mean forgetting or excusing egregious acts. It doesn't mean, oh, that's okay, because it's not okay. It doesn't mean forgetting or excusing egregious acts. It does not insist that reconciliation be immediate or return to its previous form. And it does not remove any legal consequences that may apply. Can I just say this? If you are guilty of any kind of abuse here at First Baptist Church, we will absolutely forgive you. But we will also prosecute you. Okay? Too many churches in the name of forgiveness turned a blind eye to egregious harmful acts. And that is not what forgiveness is all about. With that being said, as Jesus teaches his disciples, why does forgiveness matter to the effectiveness of our prayers? Why is it yet another variable to how God responds to our request? The answer is this. A failure to forgive indicates a failure to appreciate the forgiveness that we have received from God And this creates a barrier in our relationship with God. 
me say it again. A failure to forgive indicates a failure to appreciate the forgiveness that we have received from God, and this creates a barrier in our relationship with God. You guys familiar with that story that Jesus told about the, the man who was forgiven a large debt, huge debt, but that man who was forgiven such a large debt refused to forgive of someone else a smaller debt. And that's a picture of us. We've been forgiven such a huge debt by God. Our sins are forgiven. We have created cosmic treason against the God of the universe, and we've been forgiven. Far be it from us to be slow to forgive someone who has committed a much, much, much less offense against us. In short, unforgiveness becomes a blockage to our prayers. If we don't forgive, we can't abide. If we cannot abide, then we cannot pray with power. We will have chosen to operate outside of God's authority because we are being disobedient, and so therefore we will be unable to exercise God's authority. And so accordingly, I truly believe, listen carefully, unforgiveness is an epidemic in the church and perhaps the greatest barrier to intimacy with God and effective prayer. Let me say it again. Unforgiveness is an epidemic in the church and perhaps the greatest barrier to intimacy with God and effective prayer. And if that's you, and it very well could be, I mean, pastorally, as I experience people, oh, so many people in bondage today because of unforgiveness that they, they just haven't been able to forgive. If that's you, might I recommend the men is helping them take steps toward forgiveness and steps toward freedom and all that God has for you on the other side of that stronghold that you're currently in bondage to. When the stronghold of unforgiveness is broken, there is a whole new experience of freedom and power that awaits you as you're able to fully abide in Christ. Because when you're able to fully abide, that's when we can truly pray with faith in God and allowing Him to do the miraculous in us and through us. So, um, that's the cursing the fig tree part two. This is the meaning of the interpretation part where Jesus kind of takes it in an interesting turn where He takes the act and talks about prayer. Two essentials being faith and forgiveness. Now, let's shift uh, to application where I have just one question for you today. And the question is this, what does Jesus see on your tree, leaves or fruit? What does Jesus see on your tree, leaves or fruit? Now, leaves are good. Leaves are meant to advertise the presence of fruit on the tree. We should have leaves. Leaves are that which might draw others to us that we are able to nourish through the spiritual fruit in our lives. But if all you have is leaves, you're no different than Israel in the text. Israel as represented by the barren fig tree. Israel was guilty of false advertising. Perhaps you too are guilty of this false advertising. or having the appearance of fruit, but not having the fruit itself. God has made you to bear fruit, and lots of it, 
Not, not, not just a little bit of fruit, not just like a little token fruit, but lots of it. Listen to what he said in John 15, 8. Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear a little bit of fruit. Are you paying attention? That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Fruit is the proof or evidence that you are truly a child of God. No fruit. We better ask some serious questions. Therefore, it is not optional. And there are severe consequences for one who lacks fruit. As Jesus said in verse 6 of John 15, Jesus said, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's essentially what Jesus did with the fig tree, isn't it? Signifying what he is going to do next week in the meat of our sandwich with the temple and its leadership. And so we have to ask ourselves the hard question are we in danger of the very same thing? If we come to the conclusion, listen carefully, this is where it all comes together. If we come to the conclusion that our lives are more leaves than fruit, the solution is not to try harder in our flesh to produce fruit. Rather, the solution is to repent of our fruitlessness and go back to the one thing that is necessary, which is abiding in Jesus the vine. For it says in John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. <laughs> I, again, I love the simplicity of this. We literally have one job. What is it? Abide. To abide in Jesus, to be connected as branches to the vine, to allow His Holy Spirit to be the sap that runs through Him and to us. And when we do that, when we surrender ourselves to Him in that way, He will be the one to bear much fruit, Jewish. And so that's where the Jewish authorities, that's where they failed so miserably. That's why they were fruitless. Their lives were about the outward appearance of religion while they were inwardly without fruit because they failed to abide through prayer. And so Jesus says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. Let me close with this. It's a convicting quote. It's probably not the most positive way to end the sermon today, but um, it penetrated my heart. I hope it will penetrate yours too. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, let us take care that we each individually learn the lesson of this, the fig, that this fig tree conveys. Let us always remember that baptism and church membership and reception of the Lord's Supper and a diligent use of the outward forms of Christianity are not sufficient to save our souls. They are leaves, nothing but leaves, and without fruit, will add to our condemnation. Like the fig leaves of which Adam and Eve made themselves garments, they will not hide the nakedness of our souls from the eye of an all-seeing God or give us boldness when we stand before Him at the last day. No, we must bear fruit or be lost forever. 
There must be fruit in our hearts and fruit in our lives. The fruit of repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and true holiness in our conversation. Without such fruits as these, a profession of Christianity will only sink us lower into hell. Would you pray with me? Father, perhaps that is the proper tone to end a sermon entitled The Cursing of the Fig Tree. These are hard things that Jesus was teaching, hard things that Jesus was doing. And he teaches them not to be a downer, but he teaches them because he loves us. Because he wants absolutely what is best for us. Because he knows all that is possible in us and through us if we truly abide in him. All the fruit that is possible if we would but repent of our selfishness, repent of our fleshliness, and surrender ourselves completely to the vine, Jesus Christ, and allow him to bear fruit through us. So God, in one hand, it's a warning of some bad stuff, but it's also got a great, great promise of lots and lots of good stuff. The abundant life that Jesus intends for every single one of his children. Not that we would bear some little token fruit, but that, God, we would bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. So, God, would you convict those who need conviction today? Would you encourage those who need encouragement today? And God, would you find us to be as a church, a fruitful church, a house of prayer, a people who recognizes our complete and humble dependence upon you? Would you make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.